It's Monday, February 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Today we have a true crime story and a year-long police sting that failed completely. Police use what's called a Mr. Big Sting. It's one of the most controversial tactics used by police, so much so that it has been banned in many countries. The way it works is one undercover officer befriends the suspect and lures the suspect into committing increasingly serious crimes. At this point, the officer introduces the suspect to the Mr. Big character, who acts as a boss or drug kingpin and offers protection in exchange for a confession to the worst thing they ever did. The crime police are trying to charge the suspect. It's a long, convoluted process that relies on a suspect making a confession, often under duress. This story is about Alan Dale Smith, a suspect in the murder of Beverly Smith, whose real murderer has never been found, and the botched Mr. Big Sting run by a small police department in Canada. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Skinner and Alan start up a conversation. Um, Skinner has just moved into Alan's neighborhood um, and uh, is a carpet cleaner. And they, the, the two men get along incredibly well. And they fish together. And, um, and it was just like out of Alan's dream, um, as, if, as if the world had called out for his prayer for a friend to go fishing with. And they make plans to meet again. Um, and then over the course of close to a year, they become the best of buddies. Joining us now is Michael Lista, contributing editor to Toronto Life. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Pleasure to be here. We have an interesting true crime story and a police thing gone wrong. Uh, police used a Mr. Big tactic. Uh, it's also been known as the Canadian technique. It's a police tactic that's been used to not always the best results. Um and uh, in this particular case, we're going to be talking about it failed completely. It's a story of Alan Dale Smith and the murder of a woman named Beverly Smith. No relation. They were neighbors. Um, but, Michael, tell us a little bit about the story. And then, obviously, we'll get into what a Mr. Big Technique is. And, and it's just an amazing story that you that you wrote about. I really appreciate that. So <clears throat> the story starts about two weeks before Christmas in 1974 in this um, little village outside of Toronto called Raglan, when um, uh, a young woman, uh, she was 22 years old, um, uh, named Beverly Smith, was murdered. Um, she was um, sitting down to write her Christmas cards, and um, someone came into her house and shot her in the back of the head with a 22 caliber rifle. Um, uh, the, the, the night that happened also happened to be the night of that uh, police services very uh, first Christmas party, the, the Durham Regional Police, as it's called, were just inaugurated and um, officers showed up. Um, Beverly's husband, Doug, uh, remembers uh, them, uh, remember smelling alcohol in their breath. <clears throat> and um, they trolled for leads. They interviewed everyone they thought might know something. And in 1974, the case went cold for the first time. Um, but, uh, but, uh, the drum police, you know, never stopped looking for, um, the, the killer in their very first murder investigation. Yeah. One special thing to note is, uh, Beverly Smith's husband, Doug, uh, I guess he did, uh, deal marijuana. He, he sold marijuana and they had, uh, you know, a, a certain amount there at the house. And that kind of, uh, just becomes pertinent a little bit later in this story. Um, so as, as the night unfolded, as the night unfolded, Doug called home. He got a little nervous when nobody was answering, so he called the neighbors, uh, where Alan, right. where Dale Allen Smith, uh, I'm sorry, where Alan Dale Smith lives. He and his wife answered. They said, "Hey, you got to get back home. 
right away and, and and everything unfolded where the police came home from their uh you know christmas party some of them might have had a, a little too much to drink and the the theory that the cops settled on was that uh beverly probably let the killer in uh, to the kitchen gone upstairs for maybe some baggies of pot or something and then when she came back down she was murdered uh and, and as you mentioned the, the the story went cold uh for some for a long time uh, and then tell us how it all circled back and, and they found, you know, they suspected uh, Alan uh, in, in this murder. Sure. So in, in 2008, um, uh, uh, Beverly Smith had an, an identical twin sister named Barbara. And Barbara um, stuck on the case of the police officers and would would check in every once in a while <clears throat> to see what the state of the investigation was. Um, and in 2008, she um, she went to go see the inspector in charge of the major crime unit. And um, and she said to him, I'm, I'm losing my hope. Can you hold on to it for me? And she handed him a little stone with the word hope on it. And uh, uh, the, the inspector kept it by his desk. And it was not long after that that um, that the police hauled in um, an old friend of Alan Dale Smith's and started questioning him. And in that interview, um, you know, he said that he had called Alan the day before the murder looking to score weed. And Alan said, yeah, I can get it from my neighbor. Um, and then... You know, the the the, uh, the the day after the murder, Alan called back to say that the drugs are ready for pickup. And so this, you know, was was fishy to the police. And so what happened was that Alan, uh, the police, excuse me, hauled in um, Alan's now ex-wife, Linda, and started grilling her. And she admitted that it was possible that Alan was out of her sight briefly on the night of the murder and that she had heard what she at first thought was a car backfiring, but could have been the sound of a gunshot. And then she saw Alan loading into his truck, a, a rifle. Um, uh, and it was the same caliber that, um, that, uh, was used in, in the, in the killing. And so police, um, uh, they arrested Alan and they charged him with second degree murder. And uh, in the cell, they, uh, they put an undercover officer who was trying to elicit a confession. And Alan denied it. He said he had nothing to do with it. And then the, the police and, the def and Alan's defense made a very interesting gambit. They knew that Alan had a very long psychiatric history and that he had um, been seeing therapists through the years. And so what they did was that the the uh, the, uh, the prosecutors and the defense came to an agreement where they would be allowed access to all of Allen's psychiatric history, looking for a confession. Um, and we're talking many decades now of psychiatric records. And Allen said, yes, you can look at my records. Um, and the agreement was if there was no confession, the Crown would withdraw the charge, the prosecutors. And so the police started pouring over the evidence of, of many decades worth of Alan's mental misery. He was an alcoholic. He drank every day, smoked weed all day. He would do Coke and pills when he could get it. He, he heard voices. He was essentially, he was afraid of his imagination. He once said that, that he took one of the voices that, that stalked him and, and put it in a jail in his mind and left it. 
and ran away. He had he had an enormous amount of trouble um, distinguishing reality from uh, from fiction. And more than anything, what he wanted all his life was a friend. Um, He liked to go fishing, but he said he had no one to go fishing. And he desperately wanted a friend. But what the police found was that he had not once confessed. And so they withdrew the charge. But now that they had studied his mind and understood it in a way that's that's so deeply personal, they decided to do what's called a Mr. Big operation and weaponize his own imagination against him. Yeah. And this is the crazy part. So the way a Mr. Big operation at one of these things works is that uh, and and it preys upon people that are lonely or or poor or something like that because it, it creates this whole kind of world really and uh, basically you need at least two under co- um, two undercover cops and a, a cast of other characters and uh, you basically you know somebody befriends the person you kind of get them to increasingly do some other low level crimes or something then you introduce them to a Mister Big who can offer them either protection or more money but one of the Parts to be let in the club, kind of, so to speak, is that you got to confess something big. That way we're all on the same page. You know something about me. I know something about you. Nobody can betray another person. And this is the gambit that they tried to play on Alan. Uh, This Mr. Big operation that they pulled on him uh, ended up lasting about a year. I think there was like 40 undercover cops uh, that were used in this. Um, uh, It was all paid for by the taxpayers. Um, In the end, it didn't work out. But... Tell us how this thing started. The the cops set up this elaborate scheme to uh, prey on you know on Alan. They know he he uh, liked fishing and he didn't have friends, so that was that was the ruse right there. They set up this uh, uh, contest, and if you win, you get to go on this big right. fishing trip. And lo and behold, right. he won. So he's on his way to the fishing trip, and then this is when another undercover cop befriends him. That's right. So, so Alan has entered into this contest um, where he can win a fishing trip. And Alan thinks, wow, this is so weird. I love fishing. So he enters. And as you say, he wins. You know, he wins the jackpot. And um, a van pulls up to, to, uh, to, to grab all the lucky winners. There's um, close to a half dozen of them, uh, all played by undercover police officers. Um, including the driver. And he strikes up a conversation with one of the men in the car, who is the, the one, of, one of the two main characters, as you say, in, in a Mr. Big Sting. And his name is under publication ban. We call him, we call him Skinner in the piece. And um, Skinner and Alan start up a conversation. Um, Skinner has just moved into Alan's neighborhood um, and uh, is a carpet cleaner. And they, the, the two men get along incredibly well and they fish together. And, um, and it was just like out of Alan's dream, um, as if, as if the world had called out for his prayer for a friend to go fishing. with. And they make plans to meet again. Um, and then over the course of close to a year, they become the best of buddies. They talk on the phone or hang out nearly every day. They go for drives, um, Alan, you know, will say love ya into what he doesn't know is a is a body pack on the police officer um, recording and listening to um, everything Alan is saying. And then then Skinner slowly starts to introduce Alan into low level crime. <clears throat> At first, you know, it's uh, you know, instead of going fishing, Skinner tells him that they're going to deal a little bit of weed or drugs, uh, whatever. And um and uh, uh, finally, 
um, as the as the sort of low level crimes start sort of increasing. Remember, they're not real crimes because all of the all of the people involved are all police officers. Right. Right. Um, the uh, uh, he's introduced to this gentleman who is the second the second sort of hand in this in this macabre play, um, whose name, again, is under publication ban, but is the Mr. Big of the Mr. Big Sting. And he claims to be essentially the head of uh, uh, the head of some sort. He, he's led to believe uh, Alan's led to believe he's the head of some sort of like crime family. And he says he owns a massive marijuana grow up. Um, he recently, you know, in the city spent 10,000 bucks on dinner and um, and uh, and uh, is an associate of Skinner's. And uh, then one day, um, he, te- Mr. Big tells Alan and Skinner that they are going to do a, 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 bi- a very big drug deal with, of, involving 40 pounds of marijuana um, with, with some idiot they know. And then they're going to deal in the drugs, and then they're going to steal the drugs back. And Mr. Big gives Skinner a shotgun to use to keep the guy um, – at bay as Alan is ordered to run in and grab the 40 pounds of and bring it back. And then as a reward, they're all going to go fishing together at Mr. Big's cottage um, the next morning. And so they do it. And uh, Alan dutifully retrieves the drugs as he's, as he's told to do. And uh, in, in reward, they'll, they'll go fishing together. Um, And uh, as Alan goes to sleep that night, um, uh, his best friend Skinner knocks on the window and says, we have to go right now. And they go to meet Mr. Big in the, this like sort of industrial warehouse. <clears throat> and Mr. Big is covered in blood. And in the trunk of, in the, in the uh, back of his car is a dead body uh, covered in blood and wrapped in a tarp. And Alan is made to believe that it's the guy that they stole the 40 pounds of wheat from the uh the night before right. and mr big says we've got we got a problem here and mr big orders alan and skinner his best friend the other undercover cop to dispose of the body and alan starts to panic he thinks he's going to throw up he says he says get me out of here i want to go home and mr big orders him to to throw this body down a hill but of course it's not a body yeah <laughs> it's this a mannequin is, this is all part of it's the ruse yeah, it's it, a weighted mannequin, and the blood is sheep's blood. Oh my gosh! So, and so, so they so implicate after, him in this fake murder, um, and when he when they arrive at Mister Big's cottage, um, uh, Mister Big and Skinner, as Alan is falling asleep, decide no one is leaving the cottage until Alan confesses to the murder of Beverly Smith, um, because now they're all you know. Alan has dirt on Mister Big. He right. knows that Mr. Big is a murderer and Mr. Big the next morning holding a knife in his hand says, we're not leaving here until um, you give me something that I can use against you because you know that I killed someone. And so I need you to confess to something commensurate. And Alan says, essentially, 30 years ago, I was involved in the killing of my neighbor. Yeah. So he confessed to this under duress because he thought, you know, Mr. Big was going to be killing him and all that. And, you know, the thing that, you know, boom, right there at that point, the cops have their investigation. I'm sorry. The cops have their confession. 
They later arrest Allen. They use this confession to put him in jail. But the details aren't all the same, actually. Um, you know, he said that uh, he stole 40 pounds from Beverly Smith's house. There was never 40 pounds of marijuana there. Um, it, no. Some of the details just were not adding up. And it went through a long legal process, really, uh, to the point where the courts decided to throw it out. They said, you know, he confessed under duress. Um, details weren't adding up. And in the end, Alan got off for this. They, they, they said, you know, this confession is null and void. <clears throat> That's exactly right. There was um, at the same time that this was all going down as Alan was um, languishing in jail for four and a half years. Um, there was a, a case moving through the Supreme Court um, that that would um, ultimately change the way Mr. Big Evidence in Canada was allowed to be entered. Um, it would now be much more onerous for for the police to use this like sort of imaginative theatrical deception in order to secure convictions. And so after that decision was made, <clears throat> the judge um, in Allen's case ended up throwing out his confession um, because he said, there were so many holes in it, you could drive a Mack truck through it. As you say, you know, it, 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 um, Alan was getting the details wrong. And the <clears throat> only worth to a confession is whether or not um, the person doing the confession can sort of corroborate the details that only the killer would know and that the police are aware of. The, the key one was the marijuana. Um, there could only have been about a half dozen ounces of weed in Beverly's house. Um, but Alan kept saying it was 40 pounds and um, 40, 40 pounds is about 10 garbage bags full of weed. And at one point, the, uh, his best friend Skinner tries to clarify, wait, are you sure it was 40 pounds? That's like 10 garbage bags. And Alan said, well, believe it or not, we could fit all 40 pounds in one garbage bag. And the judge said, there are so many holes in this confession, you could drive the Mack truck through it. So he was released. And then he, he fought, Alan fought back and he sued. His former best friend, um, uh, Mr. Big, the police department who ran the operation, the the prosecutors, um, uh, the Ministry of the Attorney General, and you know, in Canada, when you can even sue the Queen, and he sued he sued the Queen of England, um, the head of our state, oh, wow. for for nineteen for nineteen million dollars, and it was all it was all like a dream, it was a hallucination. Um, but Alan had be, been meant to feel the whole time like he was the crazy one, but it was world that was crazy and the most heartbreaking detail i think is that for many many months alan wouldn't believe that his best friend skinner was a cop even when skinner would enter court and testify in the pretrial, um alan said no i don't believe you I, I don't i don't believe that that's my best friend he would never do that to me and it really shows the sort of human tragedy of these of these stings, um, these Mr. Big investigations, which which weaponize um, human friendship um, in the name of justice. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a really interesting story. And there's a lot of details that we just couldn't get to uh, right here for the podcast. But it's a very interesting read. I suggest everybody go and check it out. Michael Lista, contributing editor to Toronto Life. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.